Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Security Confidential. And this week, we are going back to our topics of cybersecurity. And I am being joined by my partner, friend, and co-founder of Dark Rhino Security, Mr. Tyler Smith. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's been a while since you were uh, last here. Uh, and we've been doing all kinds of uh, topics on Security Confidential here. Uh, and, you know, we really want to get our audience, uh, you know, we want to help them individually, professionally, and um, also, you know, give them some technical tips. Yeah, I thought today we could talk about, uh, you know, EDR, some of the things that you should try to do in, inside of an organization um, that at least is a I've found that work well. I'd like to pause just for a second because there's a whole bunch of people that don't know what EDR is that may be listening. Uh, good so point. Could so, you? Uh, yeah. So EDR, it's just a, it's a catch-all phrase for end, endpoint detection and response tools. So okay. essentially any tool that's going to protect the the endpoint or at the very least let you know when something's gone wrong with it that being the endpoint that a user would use inside of a company or even a server. You deploy this tool to it, you monitor its outputs within whatever console it has, and then you respond when you see things that are concerning. So any indicators of compromise. And now there's a whole bunch of companies that do this. I mean, I think, you know, the CrowdStrike seems to be the darling of the industry right now. Then there's Carbon Black is there. And, you know, uh, we've built our own service around a technology called InfoSight. And I think Silence also has some mm -hmm. capability in this area. So there's a host of things there. But you're saying that in general, when you're deploying this, there are some things that you have to be cognizant of. It doesn't matter who you've picked as your hammer of choice. Right, yeah. And, and this will change from company to company. But really where it becomes important are companies that are creating things like uh, new new programs or applications or they have custom scripts that they run. The reason is sometimes elements in those will be detected as malicious. And so if you're using a tool, um, and Silence was the one I kind of had in mind. With Silence, you can uh, deploy it in a monitor-only mode. And a lot of companies, they get to that point and they stop and, and they're afraid to turn it on because they don't want to upset any of their users. And that is, you know, it is a valid concern. One of the strategies that's worked for me and, and by no means is this my idea. Uh, it's just one that I picked up over time is using a DevOps kind of approach to uh, deploying the the tool, whether it's Silence, CrowdStrike, Carbon Black, it's not as well as they've been developed and designed to not alert on things or block things that are acceptable. Uh, it's still going to happen. So when you, so Tyler, when you take this DevOps approach, is uh, explain that approach a little bit. So are are you initially would you deploy into an isolated environment? And forgive me, not being a uh, cybersecurity practitioner on a day-to-day -day basis, I may use the wrong terminology, but okay. are, are, you, are you suggesting, I mean, do do you first start and create an isolated environment, maybe deploy the tool in that environment, get the feedback, whitelist, things that you know are gonna naturally come up and then roll it out to the masses, or how does, how does a DevOps approach work? 
So basically the idea in a nutshell, and, and this is kind of my understanding, so you know, don't freak out if, I, if you're like, that's not DevOps, I, you know, it's inspired by DevOps. Um, Glad you said that so that when we get hate mail in our comments, we, we can respond to it, but go ahead. I really hope we don't get hate mail for this, but yeah, it's, it's, it's inspired by DevOps. Um, I think the whole goal is we are not expecting it to be a, a complete success immediately. And that's that's the key to it. We we know that there's going to be problems. So what we want to do is we want to mitigate the impact of the issues uh, as we're doing the deployment. And and the way we do that is by planning ahead. Um, so you had mentioned like an isolated system. So that's not really necessary in this instance. There are a few where where you'd want to test things. A great example of that would be Okta. Um, you wanna you wanna lab the right. uh, deployment of that before you try and apply it to a user environment. Otherwise, um, you'll get really angry emails from people. Yeah, well, you're shutting um, down access to people's systems if you mess yes. that up, right? So and, then they can't do anything. Yes. In mass, yeah. Um, so you're, you you shouldn't run into anything that terrible unless you you just crank everything up to a hundred percent and deploy your EDR solution. Um, and so the goal is identify first of all identify the different groups within the company, and you can start it as high a level as you want and generally it's going to be based off of business units so break it down into things like you know operations um human resources uh um if you have a development team those those folks and then if you have like it um break them into their own wing and then within those then if you need to go further if it makes sense to go further and fragmenting those out, you can do so. But the key is um, not trying to take the entire company on as though everyone were doing the same thing with their machines. Uh, and that's the real key uh, because people who are in uh, human resources don't use the same applications necessarily as people in uh, finance, let's say. Uh, and they definitely don't use the same applications as people in IT. So just just making those, setting it up so that you're not deploying the same agent, the same configuration to people across those different environments because they're not using the same same apps, they're not going to the same websites, you know, they are more likely to have unique needs as far as uh, accommodating applications that might run afoul of your EDR tool. Well, let, let me ask you this. Um, one of the, the statistics out there is that an advanced persistent threat, an APT, is usually in the environment 200 plus days before mm -hmm. it is activated, mm -hmm. right? Because any more of these bad actors, they want to exfiltrate the data first so even if you have great backup which companies have gotten wise about and they can restore mm -hmm. their systems uh they're still going to release your data and they're still going to hit you for ransom yeah, right? yeah, yeah unless you 
I would love a way to set them up to just pump them full of fake data and say, go right ahead, release it, please be my guest. You know, yeah, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah the honeypot. That's a yeah. It's it's but, um yeah. But where I was going with this is that there's a significant probability that when you're deploying your initial EDR tool, that you are you might have something present in the environment. And you're saying that well, you have to account for exceptions. How do you actually capture that in your baseline so that that activity that might be taking, how do you find that or baseline appropriately so that at initial rollout without locking everything down, without mm -hmm. shutting it all down and saying, we need to go process by process to make sure that the environment is clean to begin with. Yep. So the beauty is if you're if you're dealing with a, a decent tool, it should allow you to do that by design. And the way that it works is generally when you do the deployment, you're gonna be monitoring. So you're not you're not blocking, you're not taking actions like deleting files or anything drastic like that. Um, and then again, they should have some kind of quarantine functionality. So that can be your next step. And you kind of do it in in an in a tiered approach. So you start off with just monitoring and you can go into the console and you can see what alerts are, are popping up. And then it just takes a little bit of work to really dive into those things that come up as an alert and see what they are. And so that's that's kind of where that that goes. So so some of the things as you look at them, it'll come as come up as an alert. You'll open it up, you'll see what it is, do some research. If you Google hybrid analysis, um, there's a tool called hybrid analysis. I can't remember it right off the top of my head. I'll try and find it yeah. for everybody. Okay. It's one of those things that you just do as you're like in the process of like going, ripping through stuff. So I apologize for not knowing it uh, ahead of time, but uh, you can take the the information that you found there and go and look there. Or you can go to a, a, a program uh, web site such as Virus Total. Uh, for more information, you just hit up these different sites. You just do that kind of checking on things, and it should emerge pretty quickly what's really bad and what's not bad or just a false positive. And uh, and then you can go from there and make adjustments. Most of these tools nowadays, they're very, very good at being accurate most okay. of the time. You know, it's it's not like uh, deploying a, a data loss prevention rule where it's you know you're telling it to give you all the credit card numbers it finds. Um, that's that's tremendous amounts of false positives. These these EDR tools are are very very accurate in detecting um, malicious software and and processes that are previously unknown. Um, you know, they went from being pretty, pretty uh, all right, you know, acceptable, but they needed a little bit of work on the front end to get them to the right place to, to now they are um, much more accurate in their detections. So, but the, the key is, is break up the company so that you can create policies specific to the different parts of the company. Per group. Um, per business per function. Group. Right. And that's the easier way to do it. Um, you know, in the uh, the next step to that is finding user acceptance testers. 
inside of those groups. You know, you don't need the this sample should be representative of the size of the whole. So if you have 21 right. people, maybe that's one person per uh, group that you identified. Um, if you have 21,000 people, you should maybe have, you know, more than that. Right. Uh, just because the likelihood across those groups, and it may even make sense to break into smaller groups than just, you know, IT, finance. Um, right. But you need to have a representative sample. Right. Exactly. That's and the idea behind that statistically is... Statistically valid. <laughs> yeah. So in, in the reason that you want to do that is because rather than having everyone from finance beating a path to your door because you turned on, um, you know, quarantining, let's say, in their silence deployment, you're just going to have one person who's really mad at you. Uh, and they understand it because you've had the ability to really communicate to them and say, look, this is why we're doing this. Um, and this is why I need your help. A lot of people are really, really, really cool about it. You know, they 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 were willing to partner with you, especially if they realized a, that the impact you'll have. Um, you know, I, what you said there a couple of minutes ago about, or a second ago about uh, letting people know the why, I think is a general rule that is often neglected in our industry. Uh, cybersecurity often gets relegated to a back office function somewhere. You know, people in a darkened room doing whatever they're doing, and the general user population doesn't have a sense of those silent uh, guards, if you will, who are working. And I think if those, if that came out more in the open into the light and people and the user asset base, uh, and I think the largest cybersecurity asset in a company are the people. Mm -hmm. If they understood the why, then they would be much more apt to cooperate and, and they would be much more open to adopting the policies that the team is suggesting be adopted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, and I've, I've been doing this long enough to see it, uh, the difference between when you're, you're partnering with the people in the company versus being seen as like, well, you guys are forcing this on us from from that. How did you put it? Like the, the dark nether regions of the company, like it's... right. <laughs> um, Often that's what cybersecurity means. People don't know. They mm -hmm. don't know who, uh, other than maybe a CISO, they don't know who's on the team, like who does what and what they're doing and how it impacts them on a day-to-day -day basis, unless what you're speaking of takes place when you deploy mm -hmm. a tool like a new EDR platform and uh, it stops them from doing what they are used to doing. Then they know what you're then, doing real fast. Then they yeah. know what you're doing real quick. <laughs> you become extremely unpopular overnight. Uh, so partnering- Once you're taking that sample test though, what, what happens, what would you suggest you do next in your pro, in the pro rollout of the program? So the reason that you want that, that group of users to work with is you want to be able to tailor a policy to those those individuals um, and depending on how deep you go that could also include things like application control with with some EDR tools you have the ability to turn on application control which 
stops people from installing um, non-approved applications. And again, that would be something that would be more than likely specific to those groups that you've identified. Um, and you're gonna need their help to do that because you, you can't, <laughs> there's no, believe me, if there was, I, I would have found it by now, but there's no magic wand that you can wave that just, you know, Im imbues you with the knowledge required to uh, configure somebody's uh, computer correctly. And it doesn't matter what type, it doesn't matter if it's EDR, DLP, or, you know. Right. Uh, people think you can just click your heels and like, oh yes, now I know exactly how to identify your completely proprietary information that you're trying to stop from leaving the company. <laughs> Got it. Um, so it takes partnership with these, these people in the business units that are out there that you've identified to, to get these configurations set. Um, and the other thing is, is, is you, you build those En-ROADS with people and as you have other initiatives come up, you know, people will remember the positive experience that they had with you in the security team. Um, and you'll be able to partner on other, other projects more easily. Um, and that's really, you know, it's one of the unfortunate things about security is it's really easy to just be seen as the people that say no to everything. So once you've gotten to a point with, with your user acceptance testers that things are working, you know, acceptably uh, well, and, and you're going to have to figure out what that means for you. I mean, you're going to have external pressures like when is your deadline to have this thing done, deployed, turned on everywhere? Um, and that's going to be one example of an external pressure. Another example of external pressure would be as you're doing this, if you find something really, really bad. Um, and, and, and it is good to have it deployed. I like to, unless it's a massive, massive, massive environment, I like to deploy the tool everywhere if I can. Okay. Um, and the only reason I wouldn't do it in a massive, massive, massive environment is because just just merely deploying the tool could create issues in and of itself that you'd have to deal with that could sidetrack your ability to um, work with the UAT groups uh, to, to develop those policies. So um, again, you're gonna have to do that balancing act. There's really no magic way of doing it other than just figuring it out um, that I'm aware of. The next step, once you've got that done is now you have like a wider UAT. If if it's a really big organization, then you just expand your your UAT group um, by an amount that makes sense for the size of the organization. Um, again, if you have 21 people, probably just turn it on everywhere. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but if you have 20,000, don't. Yeah. As you said. If you have, have 20,000, maybe turn it on for another 50 and then see how that goes. Um, right. And the thing is, is you're trying to avoid that surprise of, oh my gosh, you know, we pick like the worst <laughs> people, you know, they, they don't do what 80% of the other people do in, in the larger group uh, of, of uh, people. And now we've just deployed it to everybody there and things are burning down all over the, all over the place. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and that's another part of it is, you know, keep moving the ball forward, but 
take little pieces instead of trying to carry the whole truckload at once take smaller pieces um and what you'll find is you'll be able to move faster uh towards a a whole solution a complete solution the process that's the other thing about this is it doesn't really ever end is you want to maintain that uat group so that you know as updates come you can deploy the updates to those folks first and make sure that it doesn't break stuff um and again you know they really they do become your partner within the organization they're helping you get a, a good understanding of how the actions you're going to take are going to affect the group uh, on a larger scale and that's the other thing is is you know regular communication should be one of those things that you you tell them hey listen i'm i'm going to reach out to you just know that i'm trying to get this thing done so you know i know that you have your priorities but if you could just when i reach out to you I'm, i promise i won't do it all the time <laughs> but uh if i reach out to you about something just please you know try to get back to me you know within a in a business day that way you know you 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 communicate the expectations fully and if you know you know maybe that doesn't work for you maybe you're like hey i need you really to get back to me in 30 minutes that's fine but but communicating those expectations of what you're going to need from the the uat group uh is really important as well is there a certain um metric that you would consider using to say all right from our uat groups we have achieved X, so now we are able to go to a much broader company-wide deployment. Is there a magic metric there? Yeah, so it's, again, it's one of those things that you're gonna have to sprinkle on a little bit of your own um, uh, spice to, but the goal is, and what I look for is, how long between alerts am I seeing? You know, am I seeing an alert every five minutes? Uh, you know, am I seeing an alert every five days? And and really determining based on the size of the team that you're working with, you know, if you are, you know, you, you know, an army of one, as it were, right? <laughs> maybe you want to get the, those user acceptance testers to a point where it's like, I'm not hearing anything for days and days and days, weeks, maybe a month before I'm going to push it out at large. But again, you have that impending external factor of when is my deadline? Like, when do I have to have this? Sure. Deadline? I mean, everybody has deadlines. We all have deadlines and and there's a, and, and we have to be diligent about trying to meet them as best as possible. But then that's a balancing act with saying, well, mm -hmm. what's that? That's something new. I didn't know that you're looking for that time period between alerts and it makes sense. Yeah. Right. And it's yeah. not just the alert in the EDR tool. I would imagine that if you're running a SIM, you want to account for it there. Can you uh, accelerate this process by having your thread hunting team, if you have one, inherently be a part of the deployment to begin with? Because they probably have a very good idea of what the network and... Yes. Um... It, you you can to a degree. The problem is, is the unknown is the unknown that we're dealing with here is we don't know exactly how the EDR tool is going to necessarily see any 
thing it might encounter. And that is really what you're dealing with here is you, you, you know, there's, there's a legacy application that runs um, every Thursday and it does this function on this old legacy server. Um, you know, but you have to kick it off from, you know, somebody's and somebody's desktop or laptop a computer and you you know it may be perfectly benign but the edr tool may look at it and go oh my gosh you know it's the way that it just reserved space in your memory uh yeah. mimics what we know to be malicious so we're gonna kill it um you know, there's no way to really know that kind of stuff. One of the things that, that having a threat hunting team can help with is if you have, you know, an alert that comes up and, and you're not really sure about it, or you want a second set of eyes and you can say, hey, can you guys, you know, can you spare like a malware researcher or something like that to just dive into this file that we found or this script that we're, we, you know, we had an alert on because um, nobody knows what it is. Like that's really truly possible. I've run into that a lot where, you know, nobody has any idea what the script running is uh, or nobody has any idea what this application is, but it's on this shared endpoint that everybody in this little group of people uses. Right. Um, and those are, those are really the things that you're not, you're not necessarily trying to deal with those in your user acceptance testing. I mean, w it would be great if you, you know, if everybody who had some weird custom one-off piece of software in a giant company beat a path to your door and was like, here, have a look at this. Um, it's not malicious. We made it ourselves. Or, you know, could give you that full backstory, but having the ability to um, deal with what's going to happen just normally where, you know, it's going to block this, it's going to block that. Um, and dealing with that stuff ahead of time. So then as you're going, you can deal with those one-offs as they come up. Uh, and again, the goal behind having user acceptance testers is to, is to capture things and fix things that are, are likely to break across the environment within that group of users. And so you can apply controls that are appropriate for what they they do their level of risk um uh within the organization so and i think that word there is key so for as i'm as i'm hearing you describe this entire process one thing that's um becoming clear to me is that you really can't account for everything that is not going to happen and you are really looking at this from a risk reduction perspective. So just because you have an EDR tool doesn't mean that, oh, now somebody who is intent on getting in can't get in. Mm -hmm. What you what it's saying is that you've covered a good chunk of your bases, yeah. right? And you've taken the risk to a point where it is below what would be for your industry that you operate in. But that does not equate to, oh, well, now we're completely safe. I mean, even if mm -hmm. you hire the the most brilliant hacking team and cybersecurity engineering team, you're not going to be a hundred percent safe. It's impossible. Yeah, no, and that's and that's why 
you know, that's why it's there, there's the R on the end of EDR. It's the response piece. The response piece, right? And so, and that is where your threat hunters would come in, is getting them tied into the system so that they can dig through what's coming up and um, uh, more quickly assess, like, is this thing I'm seeing, is it really bad or is it okay? Um, that's where having a, a if, if, wouldn't it be great if everybody listening to this had their own threat hunting team? Yeah, and very few people do because they are freaking expensive. So they really, really are. You and, have and to have. Uh, it's it's truly. I mean, being a threat hunter is truly. It's an art form. Let's say I have a very minimal budget, right? Mm-hmm. But I do something that is of interest to people that enough that they want to get into my environment. Am I better off investing in an EDR tool and and a good next generation antivirus and, and all these other technologies that, that we talk about on the prevention, detection, and response continuum? Or is putting in basic IT hygiene going to yield a better reduction in risk. That, so keeping your systems patched all the time, uh, not clicking stupid things, mm-hmm. you know, on, mm-hmm. on the web, uh, is that going to be more effective than all these technologies? And I'm curious uh, as, as to what your thought on that is. Man, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't think I, I won't call it a loaded question, but that is it uh, is a loaded question. It's a completely um, loaded question now that I that's uh, so I, I think you know, hygiene, you know, having systems patched, you know, having trained users that they they can. They look at every email with a little bit of healthy suspicion. I think that is a must-have. You have to have that. If your if your systems are not patched, uh, if you which they rarely are in a larger corporation, regardless they, of what the IT yeah. says, I'm just calling them out on that. They're well, not. Well, it, it is. So, and and I think you know it, it's easy to say that. It it belies the the true nature of what is being described in that very simple statement and you know when you look at updating a server there is truly a lot of intertwined complexity to that sure and there's a number of you got a heterogeneous environment where you've got different os's running I, i there's a huge amount of complexity there's clients we have that are still running windows xp and they're going to be running windows xp way into the future because a lot of the manufacturing systems that work uh that they use are based off of a technology that runs on windows xp so they can't update yes. um all right yes. uh, so, i mean and- there, there there's your proverbial right there it's like well do i make product that makes me money or do I become so secure that I can't make the product that makes me money? I mean, this is an obvious. Uh, that's I'll yeah. Take the one about making product to make me money because that's why everyone's in business. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and you know, I mean, in instances, I think the next step past, you know, the security hygiene uh, stuff. I think the next thing is mitigation. 
So um, if that, you know, that's all fine and well to say, well, we, we have to use this, this old OS, so we're just going to do it. It's not so fine and well to just say, well, that's where it ends. Um, there are steps you can take to mitigate it. One of the things would be deploying some kind of next-gen AV or EDR tool. Um, the other things are probably already in place. So things like limiting, you know, what can reach that device, limiting what machines are used to service those devices and make sure that those machines are clean. Um, truly trying to mitigate all of your um, avenues of compromise and and doing so in a, in a sense that still takes into account, okay, we've got this factory out here. It's got to run. Um, that may be the case, but just simply going, oh, well, it's too complicated, so we're just going to leave everything wide open and everybody just do whatever they want. That's not the way to approach it. Um, there is a way to, to put together a plan um, that, you know, takes care of the network, takes care of the physical, takes care of, you know, the interfaces between machines and the need for maintenance. Um, it's not going to be simple. Uh, however, your alternative is being completely at the mercy of, you know, chance. And, and, and let's be real, it's not really chance. I mean, there are people trying to take over systems. That's literally what they do for a job. And, um, you know, if you're not, if you're not taking well thought out steps to protect your systems, um, it really, you know, and, and a lot of people have this idea, well, we don't make anything. We don't have any money. We're, we're not that no one. Why would anyone come after us? We're, we're good people here. We're, we're a hospital. We yeah. Well, you, you know what? You might be a subcontractor to somebody that does make money. Exactly. And, and if I can use your network to get into them, then yeah, you're right. You're good people. You really don't do anything. But your client, on the other hand, mm -hmm. is a mm -hmm. wonderful target, and you have opened the doorway to them. So thank you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> we were at the Recorded Future Conference back when we actually used to have conferences. conferences. They actually had a uh, bunch of hackers that they somehow, I should say, interviewed via text chat, right? And 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 got uh, them to talk a little bit about their motivations and what the groups do. And mm -hmm. by and large is they want money. Yeah, that's what it all comes down to. There's lots of they, reasons why. Sure, you know, I mean- That and not- becoming, you know, uh, you know, business person or a doctor or an attorney. Right, right. But but the, it does all come back to that and it is money and it's and you know, and that's the thing is like if I go to any of these companies and I go, "Do you have money?" you know, there there's your answer. So there's stop saying, answer. "Well, we're a good company. No one would hurt us. We're good people." Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. You got money, right. so you're now a target. And if I can get at your money, then I'm going to take it. That's kind of the mentality of these guys, which, you know, in some ways is a good thing because you know the devil you're dealing with to a mm -hmm. large degree. This excludes state actors, right? Because they are motivated by different things. And if you're an organization that 
has to deal with them, then you likely have some pretty qualified people on your team that are watching out mm -hmm. for stuff like that, right? Yep. But uh, the everyday company, they got money. And, uh, you know, and, and that brings to another point is one of the things that I would imagine that before you or during or at some point in the cycle of an EDR tool, you want to take great stock of your assets like and, and be very honest with yourself. And when I say an asset, it's not a computer system. When I talk about an asset is what of yours that can I take that would actually be of some material value to you? Like, so if you're a chemical company and you've uh, not disclosed all the spills that may have happened or events that have happened, but somehow they have been logged in some system somewhere, somehow. Well, I would venture a guess that that might be worth uh, money for you to not let that get out, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a hospital system and the surgical notes that could result in massive settlement lawsuits on medical malpractice, um, you know, maybe some of those reports you want to make sure are properly guarded, not because you're, and, and I don't mean to imply that companies are doing malicious things, but these are embarrassing. These are, I was I, I'm say, this up for a reason, a yeah. reason that these are embarrassing problems, Tyler, right? Yeah. These are things that can lead to embarrassment and companies by and large don't do this kind of stuff. So, but it's an example and it's a reason why you might want to pay out a ransom. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I think take stock of your assets. That's one thing I we don't see often enough where people they they take stock of physical assets. They take stock of inventory, but you have to look at uh, your information as an asset and be honest with yourself where that information is and how accessible that information yeah. is. <laughs> Good talk, man. Thank you for yeah, having absolutely. me. Really appreciate you having me on the show. Hey, thank you for being here, Tyler. And uh, we'll see everybody next time on Security Confidential.